Welcome to episode three of On the Balcony. Today, we'll begin our exploration of the theme of authority, the focus of the next few chapters of Ron Heifetz's groundbreaking book, Leadership Without Easy Answers. One of the core lessons I learned from Heifetz is that in order to understand the practice of leadership, we also need to understand the work of authority and how they're both related and different. Most leadership theories conflate leadership with authority. So here's my take on the distinction. Authority is a role given to you or earned. It's a function in a social system that provides services, direction, protection, order, coordination, representation. Authorities often provide expertise and management. Leadership, on the other hand, is a practice. The activity of mobilizing people to address adaptive work. Help people learn new ways or unlearn old ways and integrate the past into the future. All of that while dealing with loss. And while leadership can happen from positions of authority, it often also happens from folks who don't have much authority. Climate change activists, for example, or organizers. So today we'll talk about authority with a wonderful guest who brings a lot of authority to this topic. Kim Leary is an associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, an associate professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Among her many roles as a leadership practitioner are her two postings as an advisor at both the Obama and the Biden White House, and her current role as Senior Vice President at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. Kim Leary will talk about how she and Ron Heifetz collaborated on a new class on authority, not leadership, and in particular, what to do about all of these reactions that people have to the concept of authority, from admiration to allergy. As with all our guests, Kim will bring a piece of the text from chapter three, and together we'll chew on it deeply for more insights and application. And as always, I invite you to read along with the book. In the second half of the show, you can continue to join me on my own development and journey. This time, I invited a new coach to the table, Jude Teichert from our German office in Berlin. She will help me examine my own patterns around authority, particularly around cisgender men. But for now, let's begin with my conversation with Kim. Welcome, Kim. Hello, Michael. So good to see you. I'm so glad and honored that you're here with us on the show. Thank you for inviting me to be in conversation with you. We usually start by informally summarizing a few core ideas of the chapter. And I'm curious to hear, you know, what one or two ideas stood out for you. And I'll throw in my ideas as well. But what's been coming up for you as you've been thinking about this chapter? <laughs> well, you know, um, in a prior conversation, Pat, we were talking about uh, the book, which has su played such a critical role in the development of a new way of thinking about leadership, a new way of teaching leadership. But it's also a book that um, is 
literally in a different century, <laughs> you know, when it was written before the internet, before the kind of connectivity, sometimes too much connectivity that we have, hmm. often too much connectivity leading to less connectivity than we optimally need. When I think about the book, I think about it in that context as being a foundation for so much of Ronnie's future work and future teaching, but uh, also a book that uh, tells us where we were now a number of decades back. So when I think about the book and when I think about this chapter in particular, of course, the most critical part of it is clearly differentiating authority from leadership, clearly talking about authority as having value to it. In too many treatises on leadership, management, which might be the analog to authority, is juxtaposed against leadership. And always leadership comes up as the better thing to, to do and practice. But in this chapter, authority, described in very particular ways, of course, it has value to it. It's about survival. It's about protection. It's about the human need to be empathically seen and recognized and the power that we attribute to authority figures in which they have, in this model at least, by virtue of their size and strength, to see us. It's just a, it's a very important valuing of authority and power that we typically don't see in most considerations of leadership. Mm. And I think the, um, the connection to, to what we talked about in the, the two earlier chapters, that distinction that you're talking to leadership and authority is, is very simple terms. Authority is a role in a social system. Leadership is defined as an activity here. And when I read the, reread the chapter, I was, I was realizing like how often kind of we conflate leadership and authority, how that is kind of one of Ron's core contributions to talk about leadership as a practice, leadership as a verb, something that you, you may do from a role of authority, but you may also not do, and it may come with resources, but also with, with constraints. True enough. And yet, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of teaching with either Ron and teaching a course on authority with him side by side. It was a wonderful experience, certainly one of the highlights of my career. But what's interesting when you're teaching with a, a founder, if you will, when you're teaching with the author, mm. is that you also are watching how their own ideas have evolved and you're watching how your own thoughts evolve in real time as you work with them and listen to them. So even just as you were speaking about leadership as a practice and authority as a rule, of course, in our teaching together, we talked about the activities of authority. <laughs> we mm. talked about what it means to coordinate, mm. what it means to create a platform by which people can aggregate expertise and problem solve. These aren't just roles that you have. Those roles come along with activities. Yeah. And so you see, even in that way of the model potentially evolving, to be able to address the activities of authority, not only the role designations that we clearly can see. 
when we're talking about those who hold authority. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so profound. So you you basically, if I if I can play that back, and Sissy, if I understood it correctly, you're basically saying it's not only that an authority figure may or may not practice leadership, but they also may or may not deliver good authority services. Absolutely. And that, I think, is the other part of the authority equation that is so important. It's so elegantly outlined by Ronnie and then enabling one to teach it in a variety of contexts, mm -hmm. of course. But the idea that authority is a contract, that power and resources are conferred on the authority by the authorizers, by the community, by a given employee, even in a certain kind of organization. But it, it's an exchange for something. And it's an exchange for services that, again, could be defined in terms of activities. The service, the activity of providing direction, vision, protection, and then, you know, some kind of order that enables people to do the problem solving that usually uh, authorities are directing people to do in one context or another. So it's a very nuanced thing, authority, even though we tend to think of it as with the capital A. And as we discovered in teaching and in thinking about authority together in the course of teaching together, it's something that people have an allergic reaction to. They have a much less allergic reaction when you can begin to break authority down into this compact, this relationship, this choice that people have to confer their resources and power to another in exchange for services. It, it changes it a bit, I think, in the eyes of uh, people who are afraid of authority with very good reason because they've been mistreated by authorities. Yeah. I'd love to go back to that piece a little bit later to that elegy that you're naming. Um, it feels like we're going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I want to make sure that we just get to know you a little bit more. So uh, one of our practices is that, you know, I invite our, our guests here to share a little bit about their own roles, you know, maybe share with us about your own authority roles as well that you are holding, that you're bringing as, as sort of external roles, but also um, pieces of identity that inform the way we've already heard a little bit sort of from your role as a teacher, as a professor, but you bring multiple roles, both in the world of practitioner and in academia, moving back and forth between those worlds. So, and this was a long way of saying, who are you? <laughs> That's right. Right. The question that we often ask, right? So when I think about who I am, obviously it, it depends in a certain way on in which context I am, I, I'm occupying. But in most contexts, what people will immediately read is that I'm a woman and they will read that I am of color. In fact, I'm African-American. Uh, sometimes people will assume I'm Latina or they'll assume I'm Middle Eastern or they'll assume whatever. But in fact, I'm African-American. So those two experiences of identity, you know, have been with me from birth on, <laughs> which isn't always the case, right? People acquire different uh, lived experience of gender sometimes in the course of their lives. But for me, from birth on, that's who I've been. Someone who identifies as a female, someone who identifies as um, cisgender, and someone who identifies as African-American. I'm also older now, so I'm not at the beginning of my career. I'm not at the end of my career either. But I'm at a place right now where 
I get honored more often than earlier in my career, which is both appreciated, uh, but it also, you know, can set you up for having to deliver uh, certain kinds of wisdom or certain kinds of expectations that one may or may not be able to or willing or interested in delivering, but nonetheless, that comes to you. I would also say that in terms of my, I'm a clinical psychologist, which Mm -hmm. is a role I acquired. And the first part of my career was spent practicing as a clinical psychologist in the usual ways, you know, working one-on-one with people or with small groups, largely towards traditional ends to help people to feel better and to reduce their pain and to, to have more agentic lives. I am a teacher, but I also have been a chief psychologist uh, running a division of psychology at one of the Harvard hospitals. I'm currently a senior vice president at a, a DC-based think tank, the Urban Institute. I'm a professor uh, at two Harvard schools and a lecturer at another. And I did two turns of public service, one in the Obama administration as an advisor to the White House Council on Women and Girls, and most recently as uh, a senior advisor, senior policy advisor to the Domestic Policy Council, also in the White House, but this time the Biden White House. So I've had an opportunity uh, to put my Kennedy School education uh, to good use as a practitioner, but also as a practitioner where my practice has sometimes been a clinical practice and sometimes it's been a practice of trying to lead change. Wow. So with those multiplicities of roles that you're bringing to this, what has drawn you to this framework? And particularly what has drawn you to the authority part of this framework up to the point where you were even teaching a class on authority? Well, actually, the full title of the class was Power, Voice, Strategy, and Authority, or some combination of those words. (laughs) And it was really important to me. I think writing wanted three words instead of four, but I really wanted strategy in there. Mm -hmm. And we both agreed on power. And um, voice, we also agreed, was important. But the strategic exercise power and the ability, what I've been describing the course, when I would describe the course, the shorthand way I would describe it is how to use power wisely and well. And I do think ultimately that's what we're asking of authority figures, to use power and resources wisely and well. And that means in the service of both the expectations of your authorizers, but where you can, and I think there are many degrees of freedom here, of being able to work with them to give you a different warrant of authority than maybe than you started out with. In other words, I do think that leadership of a kind is very possible and often practiced through roles of authority. You're not coming in as an advocate uh, necessarily. You're not coming in to say and focus exclusively on the gaps that exist, but you are uh, certainly anyone who's worked in a a system knows that they're playing gaps and you are trying as best you can to address what those gaps need. What are they telling you about the real work your organization is or isn't doing, but also you can't coordinate well across gaps. And so if a primary activity of authority is to coordinate expertise, those gaps 
stand in the way of you being able to exercise your authority well. Wow. I'm curious, what piece of this chapter drew your attention? Well, looking over it again, of course, I've read it multiple times, beginning when I was a student at the Kennedy School, of course. But uh, there is a sentence that I think captures a critical part of both the opportunity and the dangers of authority, the misuse of authority. Ronnie writes, we attribute charisma to people who voice our pains and provide us with promise. And that sentence, I think, to me, speaks to both the opportunity to use power and resources wisely and well, but also the danger when we equate our role with ourselves, when we see the desperation in other people's eyes and we watch them link themselves to us in an effort to find what they hope will be some relief. That's what you feel as a clinician all the time. People come to you in a state of intense need and they are looking to you, hoping that you might be able to bring them relief. And it's quite a thing to help them realize that relief will come from the two of you, but not from you alone. And if it were that easy, <laughs> um, it would have happened in some other way than this one. So I think what I, I find about that sentence is that it reminds us that people and their pain is fundamentally what leadership and authority, they're resonant with, with pain, different approaches to it. And that we're looking, you know, we've, we've extracted a promise from authority figures. I'll give you this, you give me that. With leaders, with people who are practicing leadership, they're implicit promises, right? And there's the frustration of those promises that goes to the heart of what I think is still the most powerful line of all of Ronnie's work, which is the importance of being able to disappoint people at a rate they can stand. Kim, would you read that sentence to us again? Sure. We attribute charisma to people who voice our pains and provide us with promise. What images come up for you? You know, it's interesting. There's a number of uh, studies out there that show that uh, people, mainly men, who reach the rank of president in companies or in government tend to be tall, <laughs> mm. taller than your average person. Mm. So when I think about this idea of charisma, voicing pains and providing us with promise, I think about the differential when you're looking up mm. to someone, mm. literally, and hoping that in their eyes, you will find some version of yourself, or at least your hurt, or your need, and, and that from that height <laughs> yeah. will flow some yeah. remedy, some promise, some hope. Yeah, there is almost a parental energy around it. Yeah, I think there is. And I think um, what we know and what, of course, comes up when you have the privilege as you have in your consulting and teaching work yourself to work with people very closely and 
in a holding environment where there are presumptions of safety and of confidentiality, that they will tell you about parental authority that has inspired them and parental authority that has injured them, where the promise was, where it's instead of a promise delivered, there was, a, you know, a violence rendered and where people were not seen ultimately and injured. So I think um, parental, you know, when we teach we about these topics, you know, I think it's, it's, it's not uncommon that we ask people as a reflection question, you know, what are their images of parental authority? You know, what do they remember, experience now? Uh, if their parents themselves, what images do they imagine their children have of them? You know, these, I think, are really important ways of bringing this home, literally, to people that we, we're typically in situations of authority because we couldn't survive otherwise as infants and as young children. Yeah. From your lens, both as a, as a leadership educator, uh, as a practitioner, as a psychologist, what kind of developmental moments are you seeing in, in people doing that successfully, sifting through their own history in order to de deploy themselves productively? What we realized, uh, what Ronnie had realized and what we put in operationalized together in the class was there's often this binary with authority. You're for it or you're against it. Mm -hmm. You're seeking power or you're allergic to power. And we created a kind of gradient for our students to work with, that there's submitting to authority on the one hand, and there's toppling authority <laughs> on the others. But if you think about it as a gradient, and if you can kind of stretch that out, you could see that there are many ways that you might react to authority. You might question it. You might partner with authority. You might question authority skeptically or lovingly, you know, different ways that one could respond apart from the binary. And that was really eye-opening for our students, literally, because we drew, draw the gradient on the board, you know, mm. um, we'd ask them to fill it in, you know, Wh where else could you, you know, if you're not going to just attack authority, if you're not going to just submit to it, what else are you going to do? And as they became more creative about identifying those places on the gradient, they could experience different relationships they had with authority in the course of their lives. And sometimes even at the Kennedy School, you know, of when they had negotiated with a professor around a deadline for a paper. And if, uh, that might be pretty straightforward for people who come from certain cultures But of course, the Kennedy School draws students from around the world, including students who would never imagine that you could do anything other than submit to the will of an authority figure. To learn that you could try out a negotiation, particularly if you take a negotiation class, uh, was inspiring to them. And they saw the world a little differently. Another interesting thing that happened in the class is that midway through the semester, because we taught it in the second semester, Many of the mid-career students in particular, and at the Kennedy School, they're students who come for a year, you know, as a kind of sabbatical, if you will, from their jobs or to make a pivot from one career to another. 
They're usually people who are a little bit older. I think in my mid-career class, we had an age range from 29 to 65. So, you know, people who had many different kinds of authority roles. But midway through the semester, especially with mid-career students and students in the MPP program, the Master in Public Policy program, uh, who are going to be leaving school, people start to get jobs, right? And they've got jobs that came with authority roles. And all of a sudden, they realize someone's going to be expecting me to lead this team because it says in my job description, lead team. You know, this is apparently what I signed up for. What does that mean if I'm allergic to authority? What does it mean if others who I will now have to manage through these teams are allergic to me? And so all of this became much less academic, as they say, as students were grappling with taking on new roles and thinking about what the ethics of power and the wise use of resources would be for them ahead, next month, next fall, and so forth. It sounds like there's really a space to explore options, more optionality from right. like from the one default mode into like, what are my different, different versions of relating to authority? Right. And the experimental mode that's a part of the adaptive leadership framework that's so important. If you decide you're going to negotiate with authority on one day, on one issue, it does not commit you for eternity to do that. And in fact, at different times, it may make sense to respond to different authorities and different authority platforms with a broad range of skills. So to have the ability to, at times, you know, submit is never, you know, we, we, the word submit is rarely used in the affirmative, but there are in fact times when to accept authority without question is wise. Think of it if you've ever been in a situation of danger, specifically in an airplane, when the authority figures tell you brace or they tell you leave the aircraft now, that's the time to do it. You know, it's not a time to raise questions about where do they get their expertise, you know, and at other times it very much makes sense to question or even to reject the, it, you know, essentially to reclaim that authorization. I no longer give you that power. I recall the resources because I don't see the kind of return that I expected for my investment. Yeah. You were earlier uh, referring to, you know, this is a book from a different century. If you were the editor of the 2023 version of this <laughs> chapter, like, you know, where would you, where would you put your red pen to? Yeah. Well, look, I think that if this were the only book that Ronnie had written, maybe we would take a red pen to it. But he's written other books, including a marvelous book that can function, uh, the, what is the title of it? The Blue Book, <laughs> The Practice of Adaptive Leadership is a fantastic resource because it includes a set of exercises in almost every chapter that allow people to practice for themselves. So it embodies the very spirit of the work. It's not, here is the theory, here is the treatise, absorb it. It is, here are a set of ideas and here's 
a technology, these exercises that allow you to utilize them. So I, instead of taking a red pen, I think it's worth just looking at the evolution of the way in which even the books have been written. And people probably listening to this podcast know that there's a, I think it's a Coursera or what, not Coursera, it's a Harvard X or whatever is the online course, <laughs> but it's, it's marvelous. It's a beautiful course that uses the best of online teaching to deliver these ideas now to a vast audience. So the chief difference, I would say, from a book that's written in the 90s to where we are right now is, of course, the internet and connectivity and the fact that it's now possible to learn this framework and to practice it anywhere on the globe. We've heard so much from, you know, so much wonderful insights from the teacher. And I want to, for the last few minutes we have together here, I want to circle to your practice because you have a, you also have a rich experience as a practitioner. And um, if you're open to it, I would love to, to circle back to that sentence, to that quote one more time and take a look at, at those themes of, of charisma, of promise, of pain, and be curious as we're reading the sentence together one more time, just to hear in your own experience as a practitioner, how do these concepts come to life? So would you be so kind and read that sentence one more time for us? We attribute charisma to people who voice our pains and provide us with promise. Where does this come to life in your world as a practitioner? Well, I'll speak a little bit to my work in the Biden administration, where my job was to be a member of two teams, uh, one at the DPC, the Domestic Policy Council, and before that at the Office of Management and Budget to help implement the president's executive order on equity. Now, an executive order is uh, an authority vehicle. It has the force of law. It also is a document that specifies a vision for what people are to do and why. But most executive orders, as, as this one, don't lay it out. It's, it's not a, an operations manual. It doesn't say, on the 30th of March, do this and do it this way. It gives people a vision. It tells them what deliverables they're, they're responsible for. But there's a vast space in between from how you get from the vision to the deliverable. So we had to operationalize that, or rather the Office of Management Budget had to operationalize that, the equity team in particular. And then, you know, you give federal agencies in this instance um, a set of tools about how to put together an equity team. You create vehicles for them to learn what equity means, what leadership for equity might entail, what kind of data you need what administrative burden is and why it's a good idea to mitigate it if you're looking for equity and so forth. But you also were working with people who had different lived experiences, different identities, who are on teams. They're on those teams because they have differentiated expertise. They're using data to drive their decision-making. But data alone tells you maybe where you shouldn't go. It doesn't always tell you where you should go. So people still have to make decisions as a team, about what we will do when they don't all agree. Coming in as someone who, you know, has the academic titles I have and the roles I have, 
I think sometimes people would look at me as, oh, good, <laughs> the expert has arrived to help us and tell us what we should do in order to meet the terms of this executive order. And of course, yes, that's why I was there <laughs> to tell them what they needed to do in order to meet the terms of the executive order. But I think that my experience with the framework also helped me to step back and to recognize that even those terms that they had to meet required their engagement, their input, their struggle, not endlessly, because there was a timetable that needed to take place. And so it was a way of finding those places for, to support the leadership of those teams, creating ways that they could experience their teams as, as a holding environment, but also trying to coordinate their activity and to try to help them to find the expertise they needed in order to make good on what the, their president, our president in the United States, had asked of us, of them in particular. And I have to say it was deeply satisfying when 92 federal agencies submitted agency equity plans. And some were extremely creative. Some were maybe as creative as that team could do, but they all represented a coordinated action to do something together on behalf of the collective community. And that was a very powerful experience of seeing how coordinated expertise could deliver outcomes and use both the tools of authority and the tools of leadership towards trying to make the world a better place. Mm. I really got in touch in that story with that, with that promise, with that hope in the end, with that joy from that progress that was made. But I also got a sense as you were talking about that arc, um, the moments when you sort of hit on the struggle and, and you shared something around being, allowing some of that struggle, like maybe not too much, but some version of that struggle to be with those people involved, that there was a reaction in your voice that made me curious to hear a little bit more because my sense is that must have been hard. Would you share a little bit more? Like what, what does it mean to keep people in that struggle to not fully as an expert kind of come in and take the work off of people's shoulders, but, but leave it with them? Well, you know, in a way, I, I think the important part of the framework is that it's not as though you could take the work off their shoulders. You know, it's not as though you're like withholding something that you would, you know, be able to give them, you know. And I think that's really important. But it's also the case that if people are not progressing in a conversation and you could help them to reorient themselves, then I do think that's the kind of intervention that makes sense. As a clinician, you want people to, to grapple with their own truths. You want them to see the, uh, you know, options before them. But, you know, you've also, like, worked with lots of people over the course of your life as a, as a, as a clinician. And it's, you do have some expertise, not on this person's life, but on other lives that you've worked with. As a teacher, you've worked with a bunch of classes and students. So you have some ideas that you can share about how 
people can get options for how they might be able to move themselves forward. That's where I end up as a practitioner. I tend to be inclined to take a more measured approach to how much disorientation is actually helpful in various contexts. Because disoriented people can't think. They can't. And yet, if you rush in too quickly, one, you know, you're rushing in with what? You don't have the expertise anyway, you know, and you're giving them something uh, trite, something that, that is mechanical that they could have thought of on their own or Googled for that matter. So you want to think about what, at least as I do, you know, what can you uniquely offer and how can you, in your offering, be willing to show people that you too are struggling and you're trying to learn in real time. That I think is the most important part. And when people get a whiff of that, oh, we are struggling with something that everybody is struggling with. The nature of this talk about equity, the nature of different kinds of lived experience, of different kinds of privilege means that this conversation will always be fraught. But if we have to still produce something together, how can we manage the fraught moment in the service of work we have agreed and in fact are obliged to do together? Thank you. Kim, it was such a joy to have you here to listen to your reflections from your various roles. Really appreciate the time together. Well, thank you, Michael. And thank you for creating such a platform for people to listen. And as they listen, no doubt, have different conversations with one another. So thank you. Coming up, what happens if I change my lens from talking about leadership to actually practicing it? I'll continue to explore that with my coach, Judith. This time, we'll talk about my own patterns around relating to authorities, especially when emotions show up, like fear and anger. That's after the break. Hey there, this is Andy, facilitator and executive coach at Konu. Thanks for tuning in to On the Balcony. Are you curious to learn more about how to exercise leadership or how to thrive in times of uncertainty and change? Over the next several months, Konu is hosting a series of virtual sessions designed to help you bring some of the ideas from this podcast into your work and your life. We'll explore key leadership distinctions that can help you mobilize people to make progress in times of change, regardless of your job title, your position, or your seniority. We'll also explore practices and mindset shifts that can help you stay anchored and grounded when the heat goes up and take care of yourself over the long haul so you don't burn out. You can learn more and sign up at konu.org slash events. And as a regular listener of this podcast, you can use the code BALCONY to waive your registration fee. That's konu.org slash events. And the registration code is BALCONY. Excited to see you there. Welcome back to On the Balcony. In the second part of today's episode, we'll shift the gear towards application. In a moment, you will join a live coaching session with me as the client and my colleague Judith as the coach. 
But before that, let's catch up. You might recall that in the uh, first two episodes, I've been on a journey to explore how I can practice more leadership, bringing more of my German identity to the DEIJ conversation and insights and experiences around dealing with difficult pasts. We uh, began to discover some of the ways that I get in my own way, my worries around not belonging, my fear about being reprimanded. This episode will go a little deeper into that fear part, especially when dealing with people in authority roles. If you're new to coaching, here's the thing you need to know for today's episode. You might notice an almost circular nature in the conversation. Topics and patterns, themes come up again and again, like anger and fear this time. And sometimes it feels like we're almost circling around them. As we do that, I invite you to pay attention to how you, that my coach, helps me begin to get a handle on the pattern and the assumptions that drive my behavior, inviting me to see and hold it as object for deeper examination. That's often the work of early sessions in a coaching journey. It can feel tedious, but it's the foundation for groundbreaking insights that may unleash new actions later in the process. I really hope that's worth all of the sweat. So off we go. Here's my colleague, Judith Teichert. Hey, Judith, good to see you. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Good seeing you. Great to be with you. In a minute, I'll, I'll give the mic to you to, to guide us through a coaching session. But I'm, I'm just curious, you know, before we get started, is there anything you want to share with our listeners, with me around how you think about coaching, about coaching practice, anything we need to know? There's only one thing I think that I would like to briefly name, and that is, I think you have all that it takes. And I'm here to help you access all that you have so that you can use that. That's great. <sighs> I love that. Should we dive in? Yes, let's do it. So, Michael, what would be valuable for you right now, today, in this coaching session? I would love to do two things. One is to catch you up a little bit on what I've, I've learned from Andy and, and what has happened between that last session that I did with him and, and where we are now. And then as I'm engaging with this, this theme of authority, I, th I think I have, a, I have a real edge that I want to explore there. So would it be okay if I summarize a little bit just kind of my, my latest thinking of, of that journey? Absolutely. That would be excellent. So Andy and I in our first sessions, you know, really honed in on a coaching objective of me practicing more leadership by bringing in more of myself, more of my German identity into my own practice of teaching leadership, talking about leadership by pulling in the connections between topics of social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, and what it means to like confront difficult histories, difficult past, German past, uh, fragility, you know, family past, like, you know, all, all of these topics. And as we've been exploring that in our two coaching conversations, I think I've been encountering some of my own edges around like why I haven't, haven't done this uh, so far, like worries around belonging, you know, some fear, some anxiety came up, what I called fragility in the last session. And, and I, um, after the last session with Andy, I, I went back to Germany and, and I kind of formed the intention in that session to um, 
have a bunch of conversations with my family of origin around difficult history in my own family. And I didn't do it. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> what a wonderful start for this coaching session. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so I think I want to debrief a little bit, like what's, what's been going on there, why I didn't do it. And I think there is a connection to the, to the topic for today, which is the fear, the anxiety that has come up in that coaching last time with Andy was also really present when I was back in Germany. There was also a lot of other things going on in my life that kind of have really distracted me. And, and, and at the same time, it just felt too overwhelming. It just felt too much to like, you know, engage with my, with my parents around these really difficult questions. And, and like, it wasn't safe. It didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. In a way, it felt like the right move to not be, you know, it felt too dangerous. I still have that curiosity, but it was just like, I couldn't. What I'm hearing is that you're maybe just developing a better sense of, you know, where exactly is that edge? What is too dangerous? And what is just the right amount of risk that, that feels right for this point in time for you? And is that that edge that you mentioned? So I had a second insight that I wanted to share, which was, as I was engaging with the book and those chapters on authority, and especially in the conversation I just had with Kim Leary, I realized like that some of that pattern that felt like huge and big in my own family that kind of relates to like me feeling like afraid around a parent, that some of those patterns are also showing up in other parts of my life. Maybe, and I'm maybe not as big, but like present. And the pattern, I think, so, so Kim was talking a lot about sort of the spectrum about how we all relate to authority. You know, some are different, you know, between deference and uh, rebellion <laughs> and all of these like middle points. And I'm noticing in myself a pattern and I've, I've known this, um, but I, I think there's more to examine there of, I think I'm more in the deference camp and I particularly feel like some fear and some nervousness around people in very senior roles of authority, especially if they're kind of cisgendered, pale, white, and like a little bit in that dominant, slightly even aggressive uh, stance. Like that is where it's really, really hard to find a nuanced way to engage with, you know, with people in those roles. And, and where my default is like basically a version of what I just experienced in Germany, which is like, avoid, <laughs> get me, you know, get out of here. <laughs> and I was wondering, I was like, so as, as, as I'm sort of tying the threads together between those, those two experiences, I'm like, I think that would be a great coaching topic today. Wonderful. That sounds really exciting to talk about. And I also just want to say, I'm, I really appreciate your openness and sharing this with me. And what, I, what I've heard is you're noticing a pattern. First of all, you noticed you went to Germany, had an intention, and you ended up not doing it. And then you noticed there are other things going on in my life. And what came up in Germany was not, not doing it because you forgot, but because it felt too dangerous. Because it felt, as you mentioned, fear and anxiety being present around talking, especially to your parents. 
And then in that conversation with Kim, you noticed, you know, there, there might be a pattern and Kim spoke around, you know, different parents in our lives and other fields and, and authority figures and how sort of reactive patterns might be around deference or rebellion. And then the way I understood you is that got you thinking like, and where am I on that scale? Mm-hmm. And there's this pattern of when there are white, cisgendered, male, more dominant people in senior authority roles, that triggers a pattern in you. And you said it's, you know, the, the pattern is avoid. Mm-hmm. What are you avoiding? Engagement, interaction, partnership feels like a big word, like relationship, collaboration. Can you share a bit more about that? Just tell me a bit more about, you know, what about partnership, collaboration, maybe engagement feels unpleasant or risky? What exactly is it about that that you don't want to experience or feel? So the words that come into my head, feeling that comes into my body is like small, belittling devaluing, being brushed off, like versions of that. And where in your body do you, can you sense that right now in your body? I sense the fear. I sense like the, the sweat, the, the nervousness around that. It's funny how just thinking about it gets our, gets our body going. Mm-hmm. And when you sense into those somatic reactions, and maybe if, if you want to, you could close your eyes and just breathe into that. Is there like an image coming up for you? The image that comes up for me is like an angry landlord I once had. That it was like, fits exactly that pattern. <laughs> and how did you deal with that landlord? Oh my God, I felt so helpless. He was just like so nitty gritty about everything and like felt like every single thing like when I moved out, like went through the through the list of like all of the things that were not left in good state at that at that place and i actually think that i probably left the home bed in a better state than i got it <laughs> i felt so it's just, just a tiny scene right but like it felt unfair and just i felt like not seen i felt not like those typical authority functions that we talk about like you know protection direction order like the holding like none of this was was there like it's just like yelling <laughs> yeah it's just this angry man Mm-hmm. Just an angry man yelling. And even though you left the place in a better shape than it was before, it still wasn't enough. It still wasn't good enough. And I'm sure you've encountered in different episodes people in senior authority roles that triggered you in that sense. Can you think of an episode that where you look back and think, I did a good job in dealing with that anger? Two or three images come up. But it's always the same pattern. It's mostly in a coaching conversation, right? Coaching client shows up and is like so upset about something, you know, in the organization. And like, I can't believe they did that to me in this department. And they're not just not getting it. And they're like, and they're like venting the first 10 minutes, right? I'm just like, you know, yelling, right? They're not yelling at me. They're not angry with me. They're just like, you know, here they are. They see their coach and they're just like, wow. <laughs> and what I most of the time do is, you know, I, I listen to it and I try to listen for the sense of, I, you know, I validate the anger and I just try to listen for the sense of injustice. 
they are feeling in their own story, in their own world. And I try to like connect that and uplift that and say like, you know, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, in, in your experience of that injustice, that you are angry. And usually that helps them get a little bit, you know, on the balcony, you know, see a little bit their own anger. And, and, and that usually like releases that tension. And I think those moments when, when I manage to connect, first, I think there's two, two components here. A, if the anger is not directed at me directly and B, if, if I can find the story behind the anger and understand the logic, even if that's not my story, even if I don't feel the injustice, even if I'm like, oh, this is like a little, but if I find their version of that, I think then, then I can empathize and see like, ah, okay, that makes sense. So those moments, I feel like I can, I can deal with well. So you just said when you, in situations where you engaged successfully, productively with others who were angry, what you do is you provide room to vent and use that space to listen for a sense of injustice and validate that. And my first question is, to what extent do you use that as a strategy for yourself? The first answer I have for this is like, I don't express my anger that much. <laughs> How interesting. That's not interesting. My anger is a scary emotion for me, probably for understandable reasons. Like I'm scared of other people's anger. And I think I'm also scared of my own anger. Uh, I'm really scared, I think, of expressing anger, anger in ways that hurts others and, and destroys or, or threatens uh, the relationship. Mm -hmm. That's a big worry of mine. So, so I went with that landlord, like I would not be angry back at him. I would be like, you know, deferential, appeasing, pleasing, like, you know, trying to like jump through all of the, the hoops that he like puts up. And, and I think I even may have like, I even may have like kind of taken off some of my deposit, uh, <laughs> back then just be, just because I, I couldn't handle that anger. So in a way, when, when you get angry. You don't want to jeopardize the relationship. And in a sense, that's true when you sense other people get angry too. Is that correct? Yeah. It feels existential. Yeah. And it, you know, in a sense, it is very important for all of us to belong and to feel that there's a connection to other people. It's, I would say it's one of the basic human needs that we have. So... In a sense, it's not that surprising, you know, all of us have that, but there might be a big insight around, you know, how do you connect to anger, to your own anger and to other people's anger. And I was also getting the impression that anger and anxiety are closely related for you. Hmm. I just wanted to offer that we could explore that a little too. Yes. And I can see you smile and nod. Yes. Yes, I'm like, I, I have no clue where this is going, but I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say? Is there like, what is the connection between anger and anxiety for you? The fear trumps the anger. The appeasing or avoiding or deferring whatever pattern kind of that, that brings down the heat in a way is a response to the fear or the anxiety of like something big might happen and at the expense of the whatever injustice that is also happening 
that may pro- you know produce some anger. So the anger gets bottled up, and instead I'm like attending to the relationship and kind of being all right, you know, trying to like be nice. Yeah. And there's, there's great value in that, right? That, you know, I know personally that you are very good at relationships. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, what is the gift that's in anger? Is the gift in anger? Funny question, huh? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's none. <sighs> So, okay, I, I, have a, I have an intellectual answer for that. I'm not sure it matches my experience. My intellectual answer is the function of anger. Like, you know, here comes my coach training, right? <laughs> the function of anger is like, you know, give you, give you the, the power to stand up for yourself, to protect yourself in face of, you know, some kind of injustice, danger, some version of like something has happened to me and like, you know, I get strength in me to stand up and literally like stand up on my feet and go out and stand up for myself. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's how I'm understanding anger. Yeah. And now you said, you know, that's your intellectual answer. That's your cognitive answer. Can you think of a time when you stood up for yourself or maybe for others? What made you stand up? I can come up with small examples, but the fact that they all feel so little and small that I'm almost ashamed. Like when you, when you ask that question awake, that's embarrassing. I'm just showing on that, on that experience that it's hard for you to come up with an example that feels not embarrassing, but big enough to be worth mentioning. And I wonder how that makes you feel to realize it's hard for me to find an example in that sense. (laughs) Well, a part of me is like, I think I found the right coaching objective here. There's like some work to be done. (laughs) And it's a lot of room to cover. (laughs) But also, but I'm also getting in touch with the, with the pressures, right? Or I think we're, when I think about my own practice of leadership, what is really realistic? Like what outputs can I generate? Like, I feel like I'm, I'm often part of a, of a social environment, like, that where the standards are really high, the, you know, big aspirations, big ambitions. And maybe that's also where the embarrassment comes from, right? So I, as I searched my heart a little bit more for moments where I stood up, I, I think I may find things, but they're mostly in like individual one-on-ones there, or maybe in a conversation, a dinner conversation where I'm like, wait a moment, like that doesn't feel right. You know, like m- moments like that. And what is your own aspiration? What are you looking for? What would you like to find? I think courage is the, is the term here. I think I would love to find more courage to engage in moments when I may fall silent, when I may fall into that pleasing pattern to at least be more in touch with that sense of injustice, that sense of my own anger, that sense of including and including that sense that you know Andy and I surfaced so beautifully last time around like safety right i mean i'm i'm no longer dependent on these authority figures that are around me in the same way as i may have been dependent on them when i was a kid when it gets it gets unsafe i can literally walk away it's okay it is not an existential threat if somebody yells at me it's like so finding a little bit more of that that safety a little bit more courage to stomach 
also the heat that comes in in these spaces. And in a way, that is a beautiful sort of link back to the beginning of this session where you said, you know, I went to Germany and I had this intention and it felt too dangerous. And then, you know, from there, we've looked at different patterns of deference or rebellion, and we've not touched so much on rebellion, but we've looked a bit closer at deference and that, you know, how anger and anxiety relate to that and how they trigger that and maybe trigger each other in a way. And it also feels like we've been sort of circling that topic to not come up with like action options at the end of this session today, but maybe with a better understanding of what's going on in the background that we can then use, you can then use in the next session to think about, you know, how, how can you use that to find that courage within you to stand up and, and speak, even if there's a threat that feels existential. And as you said, which is not actually existential, not anymore, at least. So what, what are you taking away from this circling around the topic of deference, anger, fear? What was really new for me was that if both anger and fear are present at a moment that I always choose on like acting on the fear rather than on the anger. And that gives me a default towards protection and restoring rather than towards like addressing injustice and addressing like, you know, friction, tension. And the fear that is related to that anger itself, the fear that the use of anger or the re receiving of anger is generating in me. How do you want to use the time between now and next time to make progress on either getting to know yourself in that sense a bit better or finding a new place or? So I have a hunch that, like, I think a few years ago, I would have said like, I'm just not a very angry person. I'm a very, like, I'm a very, like, nice, mellow, like, you know. And and I don't think that's true. I think I have some anger in me as well. It's just hidden. It's just deep. And and I think I would like to commit, you did, until we talk again, to pay a little bit more attention to kind of the weak signals of anger that are showing up in me. And that may not mean that I act on them, but, like, just notice them and notice the choices that I, I make around them. I have the hunch that it will it will help me get move forward on my on the journey that I'm on. Wonderful. I'm curious to hear what you find out and you know how often and how that shows up. So I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Judith. Have a great rest of your day. On the balcony. We'll be back with episode four. We'll be joined by Lauren Lyons, adaptive leadership practitioner and engineer with a lot of experience in the space industry at places like NASA, SpaceX, and Blue Origin. We'll talk about managing teams and finding the right balance between new ways of work, innovating, and on the other side, this is how we've always done it, right? I mean, it got us to the moon after all. Here's a preview. There's so much energy around disrupting things and breaking things down and throwing off the old ways that when you bring, when you can go to the organization and bring some of those more traditional ways and acknowledge them, 
for how good they are. And instead of going, let's throw them out, maybe all we do is we adjust them a little bit. Maybe we put a little little twist on them, make it a little bit faster, but keep the core of what it was trying to accomplish there. And that that's always really fun. I'll invite you to read the chapter yourself. That's chapter four on mobilizing adaptive work and leadership without easy answers. If you like the show, press the subscribe button and leave a review that helps others connect to this really powerful framework. On the Balcony is brought to you by Kono, growing and provoking leadership. We produced Podigy, editing Riley Byrne and Daniel Link. Cover art by Kenneth Demoyo and Rosie Greenberg. Our music is called Change in Blue by Hannah Gill and The Hours. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back for episode four on The Balcony. Mm-hmm.